Welcome to Built to Play, games technology for the arts inclined. I'm Armanik Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, we talk about vaporware consoles and vaporwave music. And sunset returns, but just before twilight, then we look at how a Los Angeles community center can be like Portal 2. But first, we talk about crime, punishment, and video cameras. This is our last episode exploring games and cinema. And we're looking at one type of game that directly intersects between the two. Yes, we are talking about the one, the only, the full motion video game. Full motion video games are basically adventure games with one major twist. It's all film. You have real actors playing characters overlaid with some kind of interface to explore the game's sets. But the thing about FMVs is that they vary between kind of okay and abject garbage. Hello, players! I'm your piss consumer watchdog, and I'm rough on bogus business. They're almost universally terrible, even though many famous actors have starred in them. You know, it's very stressful being the king of pain. No, the king of the game. Yes, I am the king of the game. Christopher Walken has been in two of these things. Figured you'd get here sooner or later, Quinlan. You can't get enough of this story, can you? I think everyone's had enough of this story, Magnata. They're usually bad because they can't bridge that gap between game and film. The game parts of them are too clunky because they have to use pre-recorded video. And the movie parts are at best B-movie schlock. Because it's very hard to put that traditional three-act structure into a video game. When Sam Barlow started thinking about making one of these games, he knew about the genre's reputation. But he had an idea that FMV games hadn't tried before. What if you put all of that video into a database? Having worked for the last few years before making this game, I was working on a, a kind of big action adventure game which was never released. But we did a lot of expensive motion capture on that project. And there was always a, it always felt like a, a real luxury or even a, something that was slightly perverse that so much effort was spent, so much expense, technology, um, you know, man hours went into trying to capture the actor's performance that we'd seen on the stage and get that into the game engine. Um, and it would always come down to kind of reviewing. We'd sit in a room and we'd have two big monitors and we'd be reviewing in one side the kind of Unreal Engine footage of the character models playing back all the animation. And then on the other hand, we'd have this kind of video footage taken on the day from just a, a standard camera of actors with no makeup or costume. Um, and we'd look at the video footage and freeze frame it and say, look at the expression on that actor's face, look at the way they're emoting there, or just the, you know, the, the magic that we can see right there on this grainy video. We're not seeing it on these computer models. And then there would be you know, huge amounts of effort to then try and um, capture that in the computer versions. And it always seemed kind of slightly perverse. And then the, you know, the database thing was just, you know, that was a way of using video in a way that would play to the strengths, or, or rather take the things that are seen as weaknesses in other games that have used video, like the fact that it, it, it can become disparate and broken apart, the fact that there's naturally an element of repetition, um, that the, you know, it could feel like sometimes you're just sitting and watching. Um, if actually those all became strengths, if you had this game in which the premise and the structure was that these videos were broken apart, if actually the game was about watching and paying attention to the video and then putting the pieces together, then that was a much better way to use video than somehow just pretending that the video represented a, a kind of live view of the game world, which I think a lot of kind of classic um, games that used video did. 
That idea is the fundamental mechanic behind her story. Her story is a noir game where you play as a detective of sorts. But you're not fighting criminals or gathering evidence. All you have is a database filled with videos running from a couple seconds long to about three minutes. And the first keyword is entered for you, murder. I think at one point there might have been no initial prompt. I think that there might have been just a blank word and you could have typed anything in. And I think I might have just played it myself and kind of seen what words you could type in and, and what might work. And with murder being the first word, once that kind of became a possibility, I just I fell in love with that because it, it has the advantages of it actually pulls up the very last clip in the all of the clips is pulled up by that search term. Um, and so for me, that was a, a beautiful way of upfront explaining to players, maybe not explicitly, but in a, in a way that they might kind of absorb the idea that this is going to be a nonlinear experience because bang, here's, here's the final clip for you already. The following is that final clip. I'd like to speak to a lawyer now. Please. You have no murder weapon. You have nothing. And all these stories we've been telling each other. Just that. She mentions her lawyer in this, so hey, type in the word lawyer into the database, which gives you this clip. Yes, I understand my rights. No, I don't need a lawyer. You keep doing that over and over until, well, until you're done. Are you going to arrest me? Sam's worked with actors before, and he's been in casting rooms. But directing an actor requires a distinct approach compared to building one. And I believe that motion capture process is also how you met your main actor. Yeah, so Viva was cast on that project, and we worked together for about a year at the end of that project. So I think one of the, one of the kind of tragedies for me when that project was cancelled was that no one was going to get to see Viva's performance. It was particularly pronounced for me with, with Viva because I remembered back when we first cast her role in that game, you know, we were in a little office somewhere in Soho in London, seeing lots of actors and, you know, the actors would come in and, and they'd each have, you know, a page of lines to read as their, their kind of audition piece. And I remember Viva came in and she did a, this cold read of her lines and it was so good. It just kind of blew us all away. And there was me, the casting director and audio director. And we just kind of turned and looked at each other and exchanged a kind of vibe that was like, wow, this is really, really cool. This is awesome. Um, and just, you know, turned to Viva and said, that's fine. Thank you. Um, you can go. We'll be in touch with your agent if we want to take it any further. And she thought that she had screwed up somehow. <laughs> She's like, I must have offended people or done something so bad they'd kicked me out. Because usually you kind of, you know, give the actor a bit of uh, direction and, and try it out a few different ways to kind of get a feel for them. But she'd done such a good job. And, and so I think when this game was forming in my head, I would think back to that particular casting session where, you know, the video was just Viva in this empty room without any costumes or anything, reading her lines to camera and just how good it was and how evocative it was. My clever technique when directing actors is usually to um, keep bombarding them with uh, very specific um, and complex pieces of direction to the point where they're almost overloaded. Um, and then just then I just say, okay, now you do your own thing. You go off and do what you want to do. And, and usually that's when they, they kind of capture it all. Um, 
I mean, this this one was particularly interesting because there was so much embedded and so many layers to the individual pieces that we were recording. Um, the, and I guess that was that was a big challenge. Was if that doesn't come across, then the game doesn't work. Um, but I think in the end, it actually kind of worked out okay because the large amount of effort on this project was actually put into the writing stage. So there was a lot of work done up front where I was researching and plotting out the story and the characters and their histories. And then just ensuring that there was enough richness and enough different layers and strands to the storyline so that this would be something that would kind of be robust when the player was attacking it in this database. You know, Viva was able to, um, I mean, she's very good at kind of intuitively just nailing a piece of performance anyway. So she was able to kind of run with it. Um, and, you know, we shot the whole thing. So all of the dialogue for the detectives is scripted as well, um, although it doesn't appear in the game. So, she was able to kind of in the moment be reacting to the detectives um, and, you know, that enabled us to kind of keep it fresh because we wanted it to feel and have the kind of flow that, that felt like this was a fairly kind of um, natural interview that was taking place. Her story relies a lot on fragmentation, literally in one sense, but it's really the play style Sam has been returning to over and over again. Sam's a fan of text adventure games. You know, the kind where you type move right to go right and go left to Go left. He even made his own called Isle, in which you play as a man in a supermarket. The game only gives you one decision to make, and then it starts all over. The story changes depending on what you enter. Even the character's past can wind up wildly different. He also made a game called Silent Hill Shattered Memories. You play as a man searching for his daughter. But like Isle, your decisions fragment the game. The world morphs depending on how you interact with it. So a decision to linger on a fire can impact the way the game presents story beats to you. And in many ways, her story feels like a return to that well. I think any, any medium that you're using, um, if it's telling a story, is ideally directly engaging with the audience's imagination. Um, so, you know, if you take a good example um, in the cinema, which, you know, is a medium that is founded on the technology of pointing a camera and um, making a visual record of stuff. So, you know, this, that, that, you know that is the, the medium of looking at stuff. But you find that a lot of the craft and a lot of the art in the cinema is what you don't show. It's what's implied in the cut or the montage. Um, it's what your imagination comes up with when you see a character's eyes. What are they looking at? What's off screen? You know, it's using light and shadow to hide things and imply things. Um, and I think the same rules apply to video games. But I think video games have a fascination with contiguous, continuous time and space. You know, so I think you know, traditionally cutscenes in video games have been very poor because no one edits them. You know, the traditional video game cutscene has a real-time pacing, and that you know just feels very slow to people who are conditioned to, to watching movies. And so I think there's a there's a feeling in video games that because you're selling this virtual reality, that everything has to be on screen and everything has to be seeable and um, you know have physics properties and whatever. You know, every, everything has to be tangible. Um, but I think this this for me kind of massively handicaps storytelling. So I guess for me, dealing with 
Um, so yeah, for example, in in Shattered Memories, there was a a deliberate frame narrative there that would cut into the present day exploration in that game with these psychiatry sessions, and that would kind of cut into that break break apart that continuous narrative, and and also raise questions about what's happening. Um, and we did little things like we would deliberately make it so if you if you were in a scene and we cut to the kind of psychiatrist interview and they were talking around what had just happened or around the ideas of what was happening in, in the other scene, when we cut back, we would deliberately move the character so he was in a slightly different place to where you left him and things like that. So there's, there's kind of an attempt to force the player out of thinking they were that character and that these things were happening directly to them and create that kind of space that the imagination can use. The, with the database, it, may, it reminded me a lot of older games, hypertext games from the early 2000s, purely because it's a matter of you type in a keyword, you find another keyword, and then you use that to link to another. So you're always bouncing across um, these ideas. Were you pulling from your, your, your experience with text parsers with those kinds of interactive fiction to help build this game? I think so. I think partly what appealed to me about the idea when it kind of sprung into existence was I have a huge amount of love for the for text games and for games where you're given this this kind of command prompt and you've got the flashing cursor and and the the promise of the game is type anything. You know, you can say anything and the game will respond. Um, now, obviously, with traditional text games, some of the frustration that emerges is that you can't type anything and and when you play those games you kind of learn there's a certain syntax involved there's certain phrases to use and, and there's a way of thinking to get those games to respond to you but i always loved that promise and i loved moments there are moments in some of those games where you do think of something and as you're typing it you're thinking this isn't going to work and then it does work and there's something magical to me about that it's, it's almost like your words have conjured something up it's you know it does feel slightly magical and obviously now we have a kind of trend where people are moving away from that text parser because it will maybe never work as it, you know, as it promises. And so you see a lot of interactive fiction now is using um, choice mechanics um, and, and the kind of yeah, hyperlinked choices, things like that, which I think is, is perfectly fine. But part of me still loves the magic of, of typing words into a game and having that respond. So what I really liked about this was you had that element of there's this unseen mass of stuff sat behind the, the, the screen of the game that you can't see. There's all this content that's there and these bits of the story that are waiting for you and you cannot see them. And like I say, you're casting out into this darkness by typing in words. And that, that still feels magical to me. Sam Barlow is a game designer based in the UK. His most recent game is Her Story. You can find a link to it in our show notes. We might as well get yeah. into what this is. What is Vaporware? So Daniel? Vaporwave is a music genre that's got, it's very kind of like early 90s, late 80s Japanese pop influence, very chill and mellow sort of. Not a lot of vocalizing, but a lot of... Um, Sampling, so very, uh, like very influential to stuff like Seinfeld. Yeah, extremely much like the Seinfeld theme. Vaporware, on the other hand, which is what you did ask me about, I just had to make good on our promise. I had to make good on the promise, and we'll never talk about Vaporwave again. Uh, vaporware is um, technology 
software or hardware that is announced but never released. Okay. So, uh, and sometimes it's not even a matter of, like, it's never, re- it's not even a matter of it's canceled, it's just it vanishes. It, it never existed to a certain extent. For yeah. example, um, there are games like, uh, I'm trying to think of a game that recently was like that, but well, Bioshock for PS Vita. Yeah, for PlayStation is a great Vita. example of vaporware. Supposedly announced, never officially canceled. Never even officially announced oh. beyond people saying, well, we're working on a Bioshock for PlayStation Vita, and Sony saying, there will be a Bioshock for PlayStation. Like, 2K never officially announced anything. It was just Ken Levine saying he's working on it. Yeah. Um, Question and it, mark. And it's never been canceled, but it you know it's it doesn't exist to a certain to in a way that somebody who didn't directly work on that project knows about. But sometimes there's more substantial pieces of this stuff that mm-hmm. didn't go that doesn't really like die off because of like maybe bad ideas or even something going wrong. It's just a business deal falls apart. The yeah. the framework that would have funded a project vanished. Right. And the Super Nintendo CD. Mm-hmm. Um, which goes also goes by another name. The Nintendo PlayStation is maybe one of the better known ones. Yeah. So basically, what you've what you've lined up for us here is a good week in video game. Is a good episode in video game history. Absolutely, and also a good week for like people quoting Indiana Jones. <laughs> All right. So the the Super Nintendo CD, the SNES CD. It's got the name that really does make it sound like your grandma didn't know what she was talking about. The <laughs> Nintendo PlayStation. Imagine a world. It's a, it would have been such a different world. And yeah. what would that world been, Daniel? Well, that world it would have been a world in which the Super Nintendo had a CD drive attachment, because um, in the early '90s, CDs were the hot new item, and every console wanted to get on the multimedia bandwagon, which led people to make some really weird and often bad decisions. Uh, Atari released the Jaguar, which they touted as 64-bit, as if that was a thing consoles could be, um, uh, beyond advertising purposes. I mean, 64-bit, that didn't really happen until, what? Like, that's... Ever? But, yeah. Computers run 64-bit. Fairly recently, as of, like, 2005. Yeah, yeah like... Sorry, the, Jag- Atari Jaguar, you were none of that. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it wasn't... Remember, remember, it wasn't running 64-bit. It ran two 32-bit processors. That's not. That's cheating. That's, that's not. That's, that do the math. <laughs> do the math, Armand. That's just, that's not. Mm. Uh, Sega released both the Sega CD and the Saturn about a year and a half apart from each other, which is hilarious. Uh, Turbo Graphics had the Turbo CD peripheral. Right. Panasonic made the 3DO. Uh, it was a good time to release a machine that played CDs, especially if it had the word CD in its name. So. Obviously, Nintendo wanted in on this crazy sweet deal. Mm-hmm. Um, when people would literally buy something because it was on CD. Um, and um, they wanted something that would have been like as as functional and as perfect as, say, this, the Philips CDI. Well, of course. Which hadn't come out yet. Yeah, point, no. But. but what they wanted was a something that could have a disk drive for their console, which they make, had, in fact, done once to, before. Right. To make bigger and better games, because they did this, like you said, once before with the Famicom disk drive, which never came out in America, but in Japan, it was a device that you plugged into your Famicom and let you play games off of rewritable floppy disks. Um, and it wasn't necessarily a failure, like, financially. It sold very well, but the problem with it was that disks had a fixed, floppy disks had a fixed amount of space, and cartridges didn't. And so when they reached, when people made the biggest floppy disk games they could, they moved back to cartridges. And so Nintendo never released it here and just ported all its games over to cartridge, like Zelda, Metroid, Kid Icarus. Which is interesting because the floppy disk, the I'm a, I have to imagine, but when, because one of the main costs of the Famicom was the cartridge, right? right. So... At some point, there must have been some kind of cost that might have actually made that more efficient in the long run. But yes. needless to say, um, 
it wasn't a total failure, but like it just it, didn't it fragmented catch on. their market, and they didn't really want to do that again because they realized once they sort of got out of it lucky that everybody moved back to cartridges on their own without them and having to force it, right. and they just sort of released the you know twenty or thirty good games that came out of it on car on fan on disc on disc over to cartridge. Right. Okay. Uh, so, there are two games, however, that never made it over. Oh, There's, which ones? Um, I think it's called uh, Mo- are, they, are they any good? Are they worth noting? Mm, one of them is the Goonies game. Okay, then best move on. <laughs> um, so anything that so what then what would then prompt them to get into this new spanking right CD-ROM so game? Nintendo tried cutting a deal with another company to handle the CD drive for them, a company that was very well known for their work in the CD industry, and that was Sony. Right. So uh, a young engineer at Sony's entertainment division, Ken Kutaragi, designed the SNS CD, which, as I mentioned, is probably better known as the Nintendo PlayStation. Uh, it was basically a Super Nintendo with a disk drive attached to the bottom, designed to play games on Sony's new trademarked SNES CD format. Um, the whole thing fell apart when Sony wanted exclusive rights to the format and partial profits on every game sold. Um Basically, Sony wanted the ability to license out their format so other companies could make Panasonic PlayStations and Sharp PlayStations. Essentially, it was a good idea that would have gotten rid of a lot of, you know, exclusivity stuff, especially back then. But Nintendo would have never gone for it because exclusivity was how they made all their money. And still do. Yeah. Oddly Listen, enough. there's a reason it's the core of the console industry. Not because it's a great idea for consumers. It's a great idea for businesses. It's a great idea for Nintendo. Yeah. Um, so, so, Nintendo was never going to go for it, of course. So, And they apparently, again, Nintendo's the only one who's ever told this story. Sony hasn't. They apparently quietly backed out of the deal without telling Sony, and instead of made a deal wherein they licensed all their characters out to Philips for a new CDI system, they d- announced this at CES, where Sony was supposed to show off the PlayStation. Ooh, harsh without burn. telling them. Um, it was a super weird deal, and that Nintendo got literally nothing out of it, but since they were chasing CD so hard and also wanted nothing to do with it, because they, they knew at that point the N64 was going to be cartridge-based. Right. So, um, really, the, cause, and that's also why we have infamous C- Z- CDI games like Mario's Wacky Worlds and Zelda Wand of Gamelon and Zelda Faces of Evil, because Nintendo literally signed away all their rights to these characters for a period of five years. Someone slipped something into somebody something. I, I honestly don't know what happened. It was a bad move for them, especially considering the CDI. Well, it was a nothing. It was a nothing move for them. Like, it cost Nintendo nothing. It did nothing for them. It was probably profit-wise a better move than Sony. Oh, yeah. Well, in terms of, like, if you had, if they had actually agreed to the Sony deal, then yeah, it would have been, um, definitely, um, they would have lost out on that one. But the CDI was a tragedy in terms of uh, a platform. The CDI was a, hey, what if we managed to play, because the big thing about the CD was that it could play video, it could play music. Yeah. so they were mostly multimedia-style experiences. They weren't really games. And, and I mean, the big thing that the SNS CD really gave to the world was that it made Kudaragi angry. And when his de- bosses told him to drop the project, he instead developed his own standalone system, which became the PlayStation. Which, I mean, now is the most... It, well, the PlayStation 4, at least, is the most widely... The fastest-growing console yeah. in history. Or one of them. Listen, Kudaragi went insane around the time of the PS3, but still. To be fair, there actually are a couple SNES CD games that we know were games on the SNES CD that did come out on cartridge. Oh, like what? Secret of Mana. Oh, wow. Secret of Mana. Secret of Mana is an infamously glitchy game because it was a CD game that they ported over to cartridge and so they took out all the cutscenes. 
Ah. They took out all the cutscenes and they had to redo the soundtrack, which is why it has its own. Like, it's got that really crazy sounding soundtrack, specifically because it was supposed to be on CD and could be even crazier sounding. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is also, by the way, the only, the only game that runs in a high res mode on the Super Nintendo because it was supposed to be a CD game. That's... The menus, not the game itself, but all of the menus <laughs> can run in HD and high res. That's good use of that technology. Yeah. Um, moving into the present, though, a man by the name of Dan Diebold, or Diebold, posted pictures of what he purports to be an SNES CD that he found in his dad's attic. So, according to a couple posts on forums and an interview he did with Kotaku, with, uh, sorry, with Polygon, his father was a maintenance man for a company called uh, Advanta from 2000-2009. As it happens, the man in charge was of uh, named... Olaf Olafsson, which is a, not a fake name, and in fact a real his person. Name is actually, his full name is actually, I believe, Olafun uh, Oisberg Olafsson. So, yes. You know, the scientist in every video game. Um, to be fair, he is an actual physicist and a best-selling Swedish novelist. Wide range of skills. And the CEO of Sony Interactive Entertainment, which is the direct predecessor to Sony so, Computer Entertainment. Yeah. Uh, when Advanta went bankrupt, Diebold's father was asked to clean out the offices, and he found a box in Olufsen's office containing one of the 200 Nintendo PlayStation prototypes. Wow. So the, I mean, as we know, the SNACD team eventually went on to make the PlayStation and crush Nintendo for most of the late 90s to 2000s. Um, this is really crazy that it was found. I'm 99% sold on this thing being real. One of these has gone on for up for auction before, but we never got a good look at it. Right. All this thing is missing. It, it, it has, Diebold has a demo cart and a demo disc and nobody knows what's on them nobody's seen these before we just need a power supply to make this thing work the problem that's a the problem is if you get the wrong power supply you could destroy the whole thing exactly which is why people have to be very careful uh his dad apparently is thinking about selling it i'm sure it would fetch a pretty penny it belongs in a museum you should i mean he should sell it to a collector or someone who is going to take care of it or at the very least is someone who is likely to so do you want to put your money on well who do you think will gain hold of this the strong museum of play Steve or Steve Lynn. Steve Lynn, obviously, right? right? Steve Lynn is just going to. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Steve Lynn like saw this article and then just started running in that general direction and didn't right. stop until he got to the guy's house. The um, I, I I was talking with a friend about this the other day, and we thought it'd be really funny if Sony and Nintendo got on the protracted bidding war to take this thing in. <laughs> Because it's really cool. Like, if you look at this thing, it's real. First of all, it's got all the traditional Super Nintendo yellowing on the plastic. Like, it's made of that same material. That's pretty legit looking. But also, the front of the controller, which is just a Super Nintendo controller, says Sony PlayStation. The back says Nintendo Super, like Nintendo Super Inter- Nintendo Entertainment System. That's such a weird combination. It even has like the PlayStation logo on yeah, it. Yeah, it's so it's really cool. Like, it's one of those like I would love to get a hold of this thing. I want to know if it can play like regular Super Famicom games, or if it could. I wonder, like, to what extent it could actually play some of the um, some of the remaining uh, Super Nintendo CD games that would have come out. Is there any? Are there any discs around? Well, that's the thing. Enter I, machine? I, it was just that demo disc, as far as we know. Right. I'm curious if it had any like multimedia CD properties. Maybe there was a built-in music player. That I mean, considering that was also one of the features of the PlayStation. Yeah. Um, wouldn't be surprised. It would be, it would be interesting. I want to know more about this thing. Level design is probably one of the most important jobs you've never heard of. They're the ones who build game worlds for you to inhabit, especially in big blockbusters. Now, to be clear, we're not talking about the way the world looks. The sound and the art style, even how a room tells a story, that's all environment design. A level designer exists at a much earlier stage in the process. 
If I were to walk through a space that hadn't been touched by any other discipline except a level designer, uh, it would be a barren gray box, just a series of boxes leading into other boxes, leading to other boxes. There wouldn't be a car in the road. There would be a car-shaped gray block in the middle of the road. That's Robert Yang. He's a lecturer at the Parsons New School for Design and a game designer in his own right. Back in March, Robert gave a talk at the Games Developer Conference about the history of level design. And one of the things that came up is that level design as a field is becoming way more specialized. So before, you start with a designer, right? And then you split that designer into a game designer and a level designer. Um, and then the level designers kind of started complaining because they felt like a lot of pressure was being put on them. Uh, and if you see some past GDC level design talks, it's people complaining that we don't really know what level design is. And when the game isn't fun, we get blamed for when the game isn't fun. So then there was a push within the level design industry discipline to kind of specialize further and try to go kind of more of this like science or physics envy kind of thing. So now level design is kind of more like this formalist architecture kind of thing where they will maybe draw blueprints, maybe rough out some um, rough 3D volumes in a level editor, um, but they don't sculpt the plants, they don't paint the walls, they don't do the lighting in some studios, they'll have specialized lighting artists for that. Uh, and all of that used to be under the purview of a level designer back in the day. Today, level designers make featureless ghost towns that are then later populated by art and a means to play through them. But it wasn't always this way. Robert worries that separating level designers from the real grid of the world limits their design choices. To some extent, it's a necessity. This separation really only happens on games that cost tens of millions of dollars. The sheer amount of images and sounds you need to fill the world would probably kill a level designer. But look at it another way, and it can become a much bigger philosophical problem. Think about your home. Like, think about what matters to you. Is it an arrangement of rooms that you happen to decorate? Or do you see the color of your door? The chair that's as old as you are? What about the rickety stairwell that's missing a few steps? Robert argues that it's the latter, and a level designer divorced from that could mean less creative world building. So it's almost kind of weird for you to say, okay, well, we're going to chop up this place into these two or three different aspects, and this one person's going to take care of this, and this other person's going to take care of this. What if you want two or three aspects to talk to each other holistically? Well, now those two or three people have to have a meeting or something, all these teams will think about maybe Skyrim in really specific ways. There's this design problem and, there's, and the players are complaining, oh, this, this place isn't feeling right. It's not good. It's not, uh, it doesn't feel like a good place to be in. What does that mean? How do you interpret what that problem is? Well, then you'll get all these different departments saying, oh, this is an environment art problem. We need to make the colors better and stuff and redo the lighting and add more uh, props and stuff. And then the level designers go, wait, no, it's not supporting our combat goals and counter design properly. We need to rethink our prop placement and uh, draw new layouts and do new gray boxes and stuff. But the original problem was this place doesn't feel good, right? We're kind of extrapolating kind of what those problems are 
when really the actual problem might be something in between all those more specific kind of things. It, it kind of discourages collaboration because it makes collaboration more expensive when you spread it across people instead of containing it within a single person. In his talk, he proposed a couple alternatives, but we're going to focus on one. Robert calls it local level design. Local level design is something you can see in the real world. It's how architects approach designing new buildings. Robert knows a art center in Los Angeles that was focused just as much on the building's function and its community as it was on its form. The Inner City Arts in Los Angeles is a community arts center um, built in downtown LA to serve an underserved population without traditional resources to arts education and stuff. So they renovated this kind of industrial garage complex and built it up into this arts complex for the neighborhood. And I would say it kind of exemplifies the kind of local level design spirit in that they kind of thought a lot about what that neighborhood actually needed. First, um, they did something kind of pretty new in architecture, I would say, uh, which is that they'd kind of released in stages. Uh, they did kind of an early access form of architecture, where first they finished one building and one part of the complex, then they finished and released the second part of the complex, then they finished the whole thing, and, and they kind of released the building in stages. Um, and that allowed the community to kind of start getting involved with the center and the complex. That allowed the community to kind of have feedback on how the design of the building and complex was progressing. For a game, the principle is the same. Approach designing with a community perspective. So Yang points to a multiplayer game where you can get special achievements. Some players decided to make maps that were all about getting those achievements quickly. But in response, others made a map disguised as an achievements map, only to quickly kill all the players for cheating. Another example is a level meant for a marriage proposal. That's actually a fascinating story. Gary Hudson wanted to marry his girlfriend Stephanie, but he wanted to make the proposal unique. Stephanie loved the game Portal 2, so Gary decided that he'd use the game to pop the question. He contacted the voice actor for one of the game's antagonists, Ellen McLean. She voiced the artificial intelligence GLaDOS, and Gary was hoping she'd record his proposal in the AI's voice. She agreed, and during a voice recording session with the game's creators, Valve, the writer sent along his dialogue. But that left the actual levels for her to complete. Gary looked towards a modding community website called Thinking Group Portals and asked if anyone would help him out on a secret project. Which is how Douglas Hoogland and Rachel Vandermeer got involved. So I checked it out, sent him the level, and he was like, I think you can do what I need you to do. Um, so he had me on, on Skype, and then we kind of talked through what he needed made for his level, and that's when I found out that it was the marriage proposal. And he had some, you know, custom content from Valve, such as, like, the Ellen McLean voice lines. Well, that's... Uh was uh, quite interesting to hear and I thought like well it's the start of the summer holiday I haven't uh, got a whole lot of things planned so uh, why not give it a go. Portal 2 is a puzzle game. You turn on switches, move lasers onto sensors and spread paint all over the floor using portals and like the paint you can go in one portal then pop out the other end somewhere else on the map. But Gary wanted Stephanie to make it to that final room, where a robot's head would ask for her hand in marriage. I don't want to worry you, but I don't think you're prepared for this next test. Anyway, I'm sure you'll be fine. The puzzles had to be realistic, but not too hard. Just a regular portal player, uh, these levels would probably be too simple or too boring or not uh, risky enough, but yeah, we really had to take care to make these puzzles 
uh, still look a bit uh, like you're in danger or could hurt yourself or fall down. But actually, there were all kinds of little invisible walls and other things to uh, make sure that every jump would go uh, right the first time and every portal would be placed in the right place if you kind of knew what you were uh, doing. They spent about six weeks on the project. Rachel lives in the Netherlands and was a student at the time. She had all summer to work on it. Meanwhile, Doug was based in the U.S. and worked as a janitor. I was working as a janitor and a game designer. It was okay. kind of a, yeah, it was kind of a weird, it was a weird employment situation. They were both a little nervous that after all that work, Stephanie might just say no. So my friends kind of joked about that. They're like, dude, what if you put all this work into it? And she says no. I was like, I'm pretty sure that if Gary was, if he's, if he's proposing to her, there's a very good chance that she'll say yes. Some of the lines that Alan McLean recorded were actually different from the ones uh, that were used in the final uh, game. Because, um, for instance, uh, near the end of the game, the voice says, uh, 55% of all marriages end in blissful happiness. Uh, that was actually used, but there was actually also a line recorded uh, that said 45% of all marriages uh, end in woes and tears or something like it. So I was like, dude, are you really gonna put that right in front of a proposal? <laughs> are you nuts? By the way, how are you with multiple choice? Now, for those who haven't seen that final proposal room, um, what does it look like? It starts out uh, looking like a very empty square testing chamber. Uh, without even any test elements. And then uh, as soon as you enter the, the chamber, the entire room starts changing and uh, shapes itself into a kind of uh, makeshift chapel. Stephanie Harbison, as part of a psychological testing protocol, I am required to ask if you will do Gary Hudson the honor of becoming his wife. He sent me a message on Skype after she had played through it to let us know how it went. We were all super excited. And then he had gotten with me to be like, hey, I want you, you can put out a video of this now because I'm sure the internet would love to see this. And since, you know, this went really well for me, I kind of want to share this moment with everyone else. And it took off. It, it hit the front page on Reddit. And um, then people were like, oh, this is so cool that the community came together just to help this guy out just just because they're doing what they love to do. And then they ended up uh, asking if I was going to attend the wedding. And I was like, I really don't know him. And I live in the U.S. and he's based in uh, London. So I was like, I really can't afford the flight since I'm, I'm a janitor. I can't, I don't have the expendable money for it. So they're like, we'll help you. We'll help you get there. So then the internet ended up helping donate money so I could afford the, the plane ticket to get to the wedding uh, in February. So when I flew down there, I kind of I didn't know anyone. They other than Carrie, I'd seen him on on Skype. We'd webcammed uh, once or twice, so I knew what he looked like. But I get to the airport, and then his dad picked me up at the gate. And I was like, I don't know who you are, but you seem like the right person. You know who I am. So they let me stay with them in their um, in their house. We kind of did the whole touristy thing since I'd never been to London before. How was the wedding? The wedding was, it was fantastic. It was the best wedding I've ever been to. Was it kind of odd then to, to, in the end, to have this level that you've made that is really only going to have meaning to those two people? 
I th- it was a little strange at first, but then I I feel like it had meaning to other people to see that that other people could see that you know these two people could get you know they could find happiness you know with the help of this game it kind of had a greater meaning to that and other people got a ton of happiness from just watching the video the comments that i see on youtube and just other people have messaged me asking hey would you be interested in doing something like this for me so i think it it does carry a greater meaning than just to gary and stephanie it i think it means something to everyone who's seen the video Robert Yang is a lecturer at the Parsons New School for Design. He's also the designer of Stick Shift, a game that's not quite safe for work. Doug Hoogland is a level designer based in Chicago. Rachel Vandermeer is a design student based in Brandon, Netherlands. She recently helped build a series of levels much tougher than the ones in the marriage proposal. You'll find a link in our show notes. Also, big up to a Wired article written by Jason Schreier. It's where we found a lot of the story's details, not to mention Doug and Rachel. We'll have another link in our show notes. So on our last episode, we talked about a little game called Sunset. It's by Michael Samin and Aurea Harvey. What we didn't say is that it sold poorly. 4,000 copies poorly. Now, 4,000 might sound like a lot for a small game, but they spent upwards of $110,000 on it. Consider that another game that we just talked about, Her Story, sold twice that in half the time. About 70000 came from Kickstarter, but the rest, that came out of their own pocket. They tried putting the game on sale, but that didn't work either. Why did you think the game sold ultimately the amount it did? No idea. <laughs> yeah, I, sure. I, I, I really don't want to speculate about that. I mean, we've, I know we've tried our best um, to, you know, the best that we can do to make it to make a game that we make as accessible as possible. And and it has worked. I mean, it's become more accessible for the people who like our games, <laughs> but it hasn't broadened our audience by much uh, compared to the other games in, in numbers. Since I accept this and I accept, since we did our best, I accept this also as a final conclusion that, you know, this is not the things that we do then, well, I don't need to know why, because I don't tend to use that knowledge anyway. <laughs> yeah, because things change so much so so fast also. I mean, with any game, we kind of know how many copies we're going to sell, like, you know, before we even release it, because those are the people who always buy our games, you know. We were just disappointed that it was sort of the same number, <laughs> like, even though we had done all this extra stuff, you know. Maybe this was all an issue before they ever sold it. First off, Aria and Michael don't usually make this kind of game. Quick refresher, in Sunset, you play as an African-American housekeeper caught amidst a Latin American civil war. Each day, you clean Gabriel Ortega's apartment and listen to his messages. The story unfolds in three acts. The controls are simple. And that's way more of a video game than they're used to making. For 12 years, Tale of Tales was known for an experience they call the art game. Which is a fancy way of saying... They use play as a means to communicate ideas, much like how a painting or a film or a song might. So they made projects like The Endless Forest, where you play as a deer alongside other players. There's no way to chat and no long-term objective. You run around a tranquil forest and then try to engage other players through sounds and body language. It can even be run as a screensaver. Now, they'd fund these projects through something called the Flanders Audio Visual Fund. 
that's actually a film fund, but they enter under the experimental media category. We actually have a similar fund locally called the Canada Media Fund, which is run by Telefilm. But in Belgium, that money's starting to go away. They have a new fund focused around games specifically. This new fund actually covered fewer production costs than the film fund. But the bigger problem is that they had to convince this new group that their projects have the same merit than any other kind of game. In an interview with the website Giant Bomb, Michael noted that, quote, it's been easier to explain games to art people than to explain art to games people. Before there was a game fund, we submitted uh, our proposals with, with a commission that, that judged animation. And in Belgium, animation, that's, it's not very commercial. It really is an art form. So you had all these people on the commission that were very knowledgeable about art in, in a broader sense, not just animation. So when we submitted our projects, they connected quite quickly, often, to, to the artistic value of our work. And then the only thing that they didn't really know about was games and game context. But that was sort of easy to explain. Um, I found um, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it is fairly straightforward um, and, and, and they, you know, especially since we're reacting against sort of the mainstream and the mainstream is something that they sort of know. So they're sort of happy to see, you know, artistic creativity going against mainstream. That's definitely something they support. And then when the game fund came around, we submitted similar projects there um, and they, for one thing, had a lot of prejudices about games that we have been battling for a decade already. And that sort of came back to haunt us that we thought were over um, internationally. But in Belgium, they're still, uh, you know, extremely conventional when it comes to thinking about games. And then, yeah, when I tried, when we tried to explain to them that what we do isn't really games, you know, primarily games in the first place, that we use video games as an artistic medium, and we don't particularly care if what comes out is an actual game in any sort of definition. That's not a, or a, you know, our goal. Then they started talking about 3D models and textures. And because, why aren't we putting it on the iPad and all this other stuff? Because they don't know like, they uh, don't know really. what art is. It seems like yeah. they think art is graphics or something, or that it looks pretty. <laughs> they don't understand the, the the concept of what it means to to be an artist and to do something artistic, it seems. So Tale of Tales changed tactics. In their own words, they became desperate. Despite great reviews and a ton of coverage, Sunset couldn't reach beyond the designer's usual audience. So now they're done making games. In late June, they wrote a blog post called And So The Sunsets. It mentions that they're in debt, that they're disappointed, and maybe a little giddy. The post concludes that most players must just not have been interested in the kinds of projects they set out to make. I mean, it's like really weird because it's like, I feel like this was a really successful project. I mean, but it's like, uh, but it's the one we quit over. And it's like kind of like building up, like, you know, when we released Viento Lete and like, it was largely, you know, we knew that it was like a very marginal project because, I mean, it's about a French novelist, Marguerite Duras, for goodness sake. I mean, we didn't expect this to be like, you know, oh, everyone's going to get this. But And yet, the Marguerite, it was shown at like the French embassy in Beijing for the 100 years of Marguerite Duras uh, celebration and stuff like this. So it like worked on that level. You know, it's like we succeeded in making something that, you know, people who are into Marguerite Duras really appreciate. In this case, we failed because we chose the wrong audience. When we made Fatal, it was like really something that we made for ourselves, for example, an audience of two, perhaps. <laughs> Other people who, sometimes we get people who say, that was the, my favorite game you guys ever made. 
And we're like, all right, that's really cool. And in a way, I don't mind either one, any of these like reactions. And we choose to call like Sunset a failure or maybe others would as well because it fails to communicate to the large audience that we were trying to reach. I don't know how to feel about that yet. And it's going to take a while because I'm sort of like, well, maybe we shouldn't have been trying to do that to begin with. And that's the problem. Because maybe we're good at making these like things that are like the path that launched to like controversy and, and extreme polarization. When that game came out, there were people who absolutely loved it and there were people who hated it to death. And then it's like, but years on, you know, now, people are like, oh my God, that was the best game you guys did. And that was just wonderful. And it meant so much to me and la la la. I think as an artist, you have it right to like sit, sit back and go, all right, I'm just going to see what happens to this in the long term over the life of the project as well. You know, it's, um, and I don't know that an artist owes it's an audience anything either. That perhaps one should try to be a visionary and allow yourself to feel that way and allow like whatever muse is speaking to you to keep going and, and to make you make that thing, no matter who likes it and doesn't like it, you know? Uh, there's, a, there's a certain amount of freedom and independence in that as well. And I think that's kind of what at least I'm gripping for right now is to be able to be in that space of of my independence and to say, okay, well, I'm just not going to make commercial video games anymore. I probably end up making something that might look like a video game at some point. Everybody will be like, oh my God, you're making video games. You know, <laughs> you said you weren't going to make video games. You know, it's like, to me, it's no big deal. It's like, just so long as um, I can be uh, in, a, in a position to create stuff for people, for the people who are going to appreciate it. I guess. Yeah. You guys invested at least a year of your life on this. There's yeah. and a lot of money, definitely. Um, how is your life then going to change in the coming months, year, um, now that you guys are moving away from developing these kinds of games? First of all, since Sunset failed commercially, we can't take a vacation. So that's yeah, a big problem. <laughs> So uh, to compensate for that, we're going to take it slowly, try to, you know, work on modest projects and, and simple things that don't require big teams or, or big budgets. Um, hopefully we can do that for a while um, and survive while we do it um, before we gear up for something bigger. We'll see. I mean, of course, our minds don't stop, so we keep having ideas and, and we're we still have a lot of energy to want to work on things, but we know we have to, you know, give ourselves a little bit of rest, even though it never stops, but to take it a little bit easier and work a little bit less hard, yeah. <laughs> at least for a few months before we, uh, you know, um, start working more than full time again. I mean, it's kind of a funny thing because old games don't stop selling, you know? It's like we've got our long tail. I mean, all of our games have been as we call it, our dependency has always been spread, you know, you're never really independent, you know, from what I just said, you know, um, our, our games have always been funded through, you know, the arts funding. Yeah. But that's tiny. Like, you know, it's all tiny. It's all tiny. It's, we are like, have become masters of putting together very small amounts of money 
uh, you know, to the point, I mean, we were lucky that the Kickstarter did as well as it did, you know, but I mean, we never have that much money for our games. And, you know, I want to try other things, actually. And we were saying this somewhere in that blog post about Sunset, that we want Tale of Tales to become a way, a sort of repository for all of the things we're interested in, not just video games, which is a change for us, you know. But it was kind of a freeing thought, you know. There was no sadness around this blog, blog post, if you know what I mean. You know, it's sort of like, if anything, I felt like I got a get out of jail free card because game development is really kind of an oppressive thing to do. It's like you're, you're sort of stuck in a room for a very long time, like staring at your computer day after day for hours and hours on end. Your entire like schedule, your entire like life is scheduled for the entire entirety of making the game. You know, now I can sort of be like, hey, I can like figure out what my schedule is. I can go teach if I want to. Teaching also doesn't pay very much. I would be doing teaching because I want to teach. You know, it's like, or I can, you know, I had a plan to write a book about our games. Um, because I think that that's an interesting way to reflect upon what we've done and people are kind of interested in that. So um, there's a lot of things that we plan or hope to do, but um, our lives, the coolest thing that changes right now, I mean, it sucks that we can't take a vacation, but on the other hand, just walking outside in the sunshine is kind of a vacation for me right now. <laughs> After all, the, and knowing that I don't have to like start this whole cycle all over again, you know, with making another game. And I think some people really enjoy game development and that's amazing and cool. I think every single video game is a miracle, but like I don't enjoy game development, so I don't want to do it anymore is the other thing. You know, it's like, well, there it is. You know, I can be done with it now. All right, guys, I'd like to thank you so much for your time once again. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. You can still buy Sunset with a link to that blog post and the game in our show notes. That's been it for this week's show. I've been Armin Igbali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. Felt the play was made with the help of... Sam Bala. Robert Yang. Douglas Hoagland. Rachel von der Mier. Aria Harvey. And Michael Sunny. You can follow us on Twitter. That's at built to play Or visit our website, builttoplay.ca. Or find us on Facebook. We're kicking off our latest theme, and it's all about the nature of play. You can follow me personally at Flarkon. That's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen, uh, slap bass master in residence. Thank you so much for listening.